Well, good morning, New City. Thanks for joining us this Sunday. Uh, one of my favorite stories was a, a, of an ex- a successful Irish boxer who became a Christian. And then once he retired, as he grew in his faith, he became a traveling preacher of the gospel. And so one day when he entered into a new town, he was setting up his evangelistic tent when two thugs came by and saw what he was doing. Now, they didn't know anything about the preacher's background, and so they made a few insulting remarks to him. Uh, Pressing their luck, one of the hoodlums came and actually took a swing at the former boxer and hit him on the side of his face. Now, this boxer-turned-preacher shook it off, said nothing, turned the other cheek, and just presented that one as well. The tough guy was a bit surprised, but accommodating, and he hit him on the other cheek. At that point, the preacher took off his coat, uh, rolled up his sleeves, and said, The Lord has given me no further instructions. He took the turn the other cheek command by Jesus quite literally. Now, I share that story because the question is, what would you do if you were in that situation? Now, you might be thinking, I would run. But imagine you are like me, chiseled, strong, and a good boxer. You might fight back. How would you actually respond if you're in a situation where somebody has committed some sort of injustice towards you? How would you view them? How would you treat them? And today, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis, we are going to be looking at this question. How does God deal with sinners? Or maybe for us, how should he? How should he deal with people who do things that are wrong or evil or unjust? Uh, Should God forgive everybody no matter what? Uh, Should he only hold those responsible who do really, really bad things? They should be responsible, but but the small things don't matter as much. Uh, Should God hold responsible those who create injustices against you? But should he let your injustices against other people slide as if they do not actually matter? If God is loving, just, kind, and great, and powerful, what should he actually do with those of us that have gone our own way or have done things that are not honoring to him or are unloving towards other people? How should God deal with sinners? That's our question this morning as we continue in the book of Genesis. And so if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open with me to Genesis chapter 4? Or you could use your phone, or if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those black ones in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We are continuing our story in Genesis page uh, four. We won't be able to recap everything, but we've read the creation account, Adam and Eve, and God created everything good, and sin and evil entered into the world. Uh, last, uh, a couple weeks ago when we left Genesis, uh, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, uh, Cain kills his brother Abel. Uh, God gives him mercy, it forgives him, protects him, but then he has to flee and he has to leave his family. And so today we're going to be focusing on some of the genealogies of the descendants of Adam and Eve, and we're continuing this question that came in chapter three is who is going to be the snake crusher? The seed from the woman that God promised to one day make everything right. We are searching for this person. Who is it going to be? Obviously, it's not going to be Abel because he died. It's pretty clearly not going to be Cain because what he has done. And so we continue to search for this person who will one day make everything right. And so we will pick up the story in chapter four, starting in verse 17. It's going to continue with Cain after he leaves his family after murdering his brother, and it says this in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. He built a city. He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so this is going to be the genealogy from Cain. The rest of chapter 4 is Cain's genealogy. In verse 18, it's going to mention a few more uh, people in Cain's genealogy. And then in verse 19, it's going to stop and highlight one of his, uh, one of the people from his line when it says this in verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was 
Zillah. So Lamech gets stopped and is highlighted here because he does something that is against the Eden ideal. He takes two wives, right? Instead of a man and a woman coming together, becoming one flesh, Lamech now takes two wives. And then the story continues, names a few other people in the genealogy of Cain, and then goes back to Lamech and, 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 and shows us something else that he does wrong when it says this in verse 23. So if you look down to verse 23, it says this, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So if you remember, Cain kills Abel. God gives him some sort of physical marker. It says if anyone kills you, there will be vengeance times seven, pretty much protecting Cain from anybody killing him. And then Lamech is on the scene, does something similar to Cain does, and he's kind of boasting about it, saying if Cain was spared, I should absolutely be spared as well. And so what we see happening is while the multiplication of humans in society is happening, it is also overshadowed by sin. So not only does Lamech take two wives, but he boasts about killing somebody. And so while these verses uh, highlight the advancements in humanity, so in verse 21, it talks about instruments being created. In verse 22, it talks about humans beginning to use tools. This also seems to be or could be the marking of the beginning of battle between humans, that they start to fight and kill and destroy and try to gain the upper hand on one another. And so here, Cain's descendants are embracing even greater violence and vindictiveness than Cain, right? Whereas Cain, after he murdered Abel, he at least feared God. He never repented. He didn't really apologize, but he was afraid of God. He feared God and what God might do. Uh, here, Lamech is essentially saying he should be even safer than Cain. Right, this is what 77 times mean. It's like perfection multiplied. Uh, this is why in the Gospels, when Jesus says, how much should you forgive someone? He says 77 times. He's not saying forgive up to 77 times and be done. It's this idea of excess, that you have this posture of forgiveness. <clears throat> Lamech has this posture of, I should be able to get away with whatever I want to get away with. And so clearly we see Cain in his line, the promised seed snake crusher is not coming from him because there's a problem here. His line seems to be getting more evil and more dangerous. And so now what the text is going to do in verse 25, it's going to spotlight back on Adam and Eve and look at another one of their sons as we continue to see, is this where the promised seed is coming from? So if you read with me in verse 25, here's how it continues of chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So uh, the, the rest of the end of chapter four or the second half of chapter four is seven generations coming from Cain. And then the story shifts back to Adam and Eve to a, bir a birth of another son named Seth, who was born sometime after Abel was murdered. And Lamech here is presented to illustrate the consequences of sin and revenge. What happens when we take matters into our own hands? And so now the story again is flashing back to Seth and his line and the hope and the search for this godly seed that can redeem us who might destroy the serpent that Genesis talks about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, it ends with some hope. It doesn't tell us how people called on the name of the Lord or what exactly it looked like. But the story of Cain and Abel in chapter 4 
therefore ends with hope, that even in this destruction, there are some people that God is still going to redeem and to protect. In other words, what we see here is that God still gives hope to sinners. Or how does God deal with sinners? That's our question. What we see here is that God gives hope. That even in the midst of destruction and death and people taking multiple wives, God has not given up on his people. This is not as if you do one thing wrong and God is done with you. Or you do a couple things wrong and God wants nothing to do with you. What we see, however, is that ultimately for us, what we have the view of all of Scripture, is that we're going to need someone to provide this hope. But even the great people in the Old Testament, some of them did some really amazing things. All of them, at least once, for many of them, multiple times fail. For many of them, there are multiple times where they fall prey to the sin-crouching snake, the snake seed and evilness. And so we're going to need someone who can stand up against it. And as, of course, we know, it's going to have to be God himself because none of us can do it perfectly. We are going to need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so even in Genesis chapter 4, where evil and, 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 and sin is starting to spread, there is still hope that there is someone who might give us this redemption that all of us are longing for. All of us are longing for that God gives hope to sinners, even when it seems dark and even if we don't know where it's going to come from. And so let's keep reading and see where we might find this hope. Now, Genesis chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1, here is how the story continues. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, this man here is humanity. So men and women, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and gave them and, gave them and named them man when they were created. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, like many places in Genesis, this is another place where we got questions, right? Did people actually live that long? Now, Genesis chapter 5 is the genealogy of Adam through Seth, and it's going to culminate or it's going to lead to Noah. Now, also worth noting here, uh, it's, it's all likelihood that these are not all of the generations from Adam or from Seth to Noah. Uh, many times, even in the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus's genealogy, there are many generations left out. And so there probably were more people involved, or at least there's a, good, there's a good argument to be made for that. But regardless, the big question that you'll have if you read Genesis chapter 5 is what is going on with how long these people live? Genesis 5 is the Seth line leading from Seth to Noah, and it's talking about people living like hundreds and hundreds, up to 900 plus years old. Now the question is, what are we supposed to do with that? Right? Is this another one of those things where the Bible is unbelievable and it's weird, and so it's like for people who want to feel better about themselves, but you can't actually take it seriously? What is actually going on? Now, um, it is worth noting that Genesis is not the only ancient account that talks about people living a very long time. We have a couple, we've talked about some of these other creation mythologies as we've gone through Genesis. Uh, there's a few other ancient Near Eastern accounts that all talk about not just a great flood, but also people before this flood living a very long time. Now, this doesn't prove that the flood happened, nor does it actually prove that people lived a very long time. But I just think it's, it's interesting to point out that there are multiple sources that talked about people lived a really long time, then there was a flood, and then they did not live as long after the fact. So, so that's just worth mentioning there. Now, for us and, our, and for what we're trying to understand, what Genesis is trying to tell us, should these ages be taken literally, symbolically, or understood in some different 
manner. And of course, biblical scholars all across time have tried to figure this out. There have been many different ways to try to understand the ages of the people in Genesis. You can divide them by 10 or by five or by seasons or by cycles of the moon if you're trying to find ways to maybe make the ages sound more realistic, at least for modern readers. Uh, But I would say this, the only problem with doing that is that every time you do so, you have men who, who are giving birth to children before they actually hit puberty. So they're like seven or they're nine or they're 11 years old. And so there's ways to try to do this. But every way you try to uh, make their ages seem more realistic, for lack of a better word, all the time, some of these men are way too young to actually have children. Uh, what's also interesting is in Genesis chapter 47, towards the end, uh, you have a verse, chapter seven, 47, verse 9, Jacob says this. It says, Jacob said to Pharaoh, my pilgrimage has lasted 130 years. My years have been few and hard, and they have not reached the years of my ancestors during their pilgrimages. So for Jacob, he thinks 130 years is short. Now, some of y'all are like, take me, Lord. Some of y'all probably feel like you're 130 years old, right? But he, for, for whatever reason, he thinks he hasn't lived that long, that he's going to die an early death. And so all that to say, again, it could be argued, your, what you, your, faith, your faith in Jesus is not at all dependent on how old you think these people actually were. But it's just cards on the table. It seems to be, at least to me, in my current understanding of Genesis, that these numbers should be taken at face value. I think that's what the text is trying to present to us. Now, if that, if that is true, the question is, how could they have possibly lived that long, right? That's the question. Now, uh, perhaps there was something different about Adam and Eve when God formed them and he placed them in the garden. Maybe there was something different physiologically about them. The text doesn't say this, but perhaps they did eat from the, from the tree of life before they were ex- expelled from the garden. So the effects of that tree made their bodies somehow be able to live a really long time. Of course, Adam and Eve eventually die because they can't take from the tree again because of their sin. And so Uh, They've been kicked out of the garden, but perhaps there was something different about them and therefore also different about their descendants that allowed them for whatever reason to relive a really long time until the flood comes. Uh, This also, for for example, does give credence. If you remember last week or a couple weeks ago, when Cain kills Abel and he's like afraid for his life, you might be thinking, who's he afraid of, Right. But if people really did live hundreds and hundreds of years, well, it would make sense that he's afraid because as Adam and Eve and other people have kids, they would know what he did and there's ample opportunity to take his life. And so that might make a little bit more sense of why he was actually afraid. Now, regardless of how long they actually lived, one thing that is true is that Genesis is trying to, wants us to see these people as real people. And it is also highlighting the effects of sin and the curse that has come from people choosing to go their own way. And of course, it does this in verse five, when it says that Adam died, he died. And yet, in spite of his death, God's invitation to rule and subdue continues even as sin is present and we search for the one who is going to overcome the serpent. And what's interesting in Genesis chapter 5, it'll be highlighted again in Genesis chapter 8, is that even though Adam and Eve sinned, their intrinsic value as humans was not changed even after they left the garden. Uh, He still sees Adam and Eve and their descendants as valuable. In other words, as we talk about how does God view sinners, one of the things we see quite surprisingly is this, is that we are still valuable as sinners, that we are still intrinsically valuable to God, not because of what we produce or what we attain or how good we try to live, but simply because we are made in his image. Genesis 5, which is after the fall, after the brokenness enters the world, reiterates what was true in Genesis chapter 1 before the sin of Adam and Eve. 
And that is that people, all people, regardless of gender or age or ethnicity or social economic status, that all people are still made in the image of God, which means that all people are still valuable. It means that you are still valuable, that this broken state that you and I live in has not changed that. I think, again, it seems to be why time and again, God is so patient. Why else would God be so patient with us if he did not see us as valuable? And in Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ came and gave his life for us, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because he saw us as valuable. He saw us as valuable. And then and hear me, this is not some future improved version of you where you've got six-pack abs and you wake up at 5 a.m. every morning and you spend an hour reading your Bible and you treat your kids perfectly. You've got to, no, he loves you today. And you're broken, falling short, can't keep a good habit. Today, he loves you. Uh, it might not be the perfect analogy, but it, it makes me think of the Japanese art of kintsugi. So here's a picture of it. Uh, the Japanese art of kintsugi, what you do is that when you have a broken vase or a pot or a vessel of some kind, when it breaks, instead of discarding it or trying to cover up the cracks, you melt gold and you put it back together and the gold highlights where it was previously broken. Right? And in fact, it treats the, the breakage and the repair as a part of the history of an object rather as something to disguise. And, and I'm not saying this is a perfect analogy to what Jesus does, but I think this helps shows what Jesus does, that he takes what is broken and he makes it new. And so for those of us that are followers of Christ, instead of pretending that we have no issues, pretending that we are not broken, pretending that we've never screwed up, uh, God then uses our pain and our restoration to give hope and healing to others. As we say often here at New City Church, if you are in Christ, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And so your warts, scars, and brokenness at all can, at all can be exposed because God has redeemed it and you are still valuable. Your history does not uh, kick you out of God's plan, but it, it brings you a part of it so that you can bring hope and healing to people who have done things or had very same experiences to you. You are still valuable even in your sin because God has created all of us in his image. Even as sin is spreading over the world, he still loves his people. And so let's keep reading. We'll scroll down to or look down to verse 21 of chapter 5. So verse uh, chapter 5, again, it's listing other people. They're living a really long time in, in the genealogy from Seth. And then it says this in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And so in contrast to everyone else who died, or at least those who died of natural causes, Enoch walks intimately with the Lord, and then he was no longer. And then he was not. Now, to be clear, the text does not tell us explicitly where he goes, um, but it seems clear that he goes to be in the presence of the Lord. He goes to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, uh, this is a little secret. I never share this publicly. And so, you know, keep the secret between us and online. Don't share it online because, you know, that's not a thing. Um, I don't know why I never share this. It just never really come up. When I was a kid, for multiple years, I'm talking like at least four to five years, four to five years. I'm not sure how old I was when I started this, but I remember reading the story. And every year for at least four to five years for my birthday, before I blew up my candles, I made two wishes, right? You make a wish before you blow up candles. One was like whatever I wanted at the time, who knows, video game or something. And the second one was this, that God would take me when I was old and I wouldn't die. 
Every year I wish that. I don't know why. I just was like, that sounds pretty good. Dying sounds great. When I was a little boy, I was glad that I wasn't girl for the, a girl for the sole reason. That means I didn't have to give birth. And now I wanted to not have to die. So I was just like weird. I don't know why. But that was my every year I wished, God, take me. As an eight-year-old, Lord, just take me. Just take me. Right? Like, who does that? I don't know. And so that was my prayer. That's nothing to do with anything. I just thought you should know. Okay? So anyway, Enoch here is a significant because he's walking with the Lord and then it leads to life. And then at the same time, he has a son named Methuselah, who is also very significant. So here's what it says about Methuselah. Methuselah, verse 25. Let's keep reading. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech one, uh, 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Now, I want to just point something out real quickly. There's an intertwining of the genealogies of Cain in chapter 4 and Seth in chapter 5 that are a little bit confusing, right? You have Enoch and Lamech are both in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain, and they're both highlighted. And in Genesis 5, you have Enoch and Lamech, again, both highlighted, line of Seth. Now, I think these are supposed to be read as two separate people, but there's a whole rabbit trail we won't get get down here. But what, what seems to be happening is that there's this intertwining of blessing and curse as humanity spreads, and that sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between good and bad and what's actually going on. That even as you read the genealogies, you get confused. Wait, who's Enoch? Who's Lamech? What's actually going on there? And so uh, Lamech has a son named Methuselah. Now his meaning, you could literally translate his name as man of the dart or man of the javelin, right? So it sounds like a really bad comic book hero knockoff, like man of the dart. Ah, you know, it's just like, who wants to go see that movie? Um, I don't know. Apparently Ant-Man's a big movie too. I'm like, who wants to see Ant-Man? But I see stuff for that all the time. So maybe Marvel, you know, should give me some royalties and do a dart man. Um, so I don't know. But, but here's, what it, here's what his name means. So his name's a little ambiguous, but it means something to the effect of this. When he dies, judgment. Or when he dies, it shall be sent. Or after him, death. That's what Methuselah means. And so you have Enoch, who's righteous, walks to the Lord, and is no more. You have Methuselah, who is the longest living man in the pre-flood era, at least in the Genesis account of how everyone lives. He, he lives longer than anyone else, which again is in contrast to his dad, who is taken up much sooner, which seems to be showing that being with the Lord is even better than living a long life. Even in Genesis, it's telling us this, that being with the Lord is better than anything you and I can experience here. Now, if you put the genealogies and the time frames together, what happens when Methuselah dies? The flood. Methuselah seems to die the year of the flood, the same exact year. And so what this means, and there is no doubt the author of Genesis is wanting uh, us as readers to see this, that for 969 years, you have a man whose name is telling people around him they need to repent because judgment is coming. They need to repent from their wickedness and trust in God. Now, next week when we read Genesis chapter 6, we're going to see all the evil and wickedness that was actually happened. And I think sometimes for us as modern readers, this idea of death and destruction makes us really uncomfortable because we think like nothing bad is that, it's not really that big of a deal. Like when I was 13, I went to the drugstore and, and stole some candy bars. Like who didn't do that? You guys didn't do that? I didn't do that either. So it's okay. Uh, right. And so, but I, here's, here's my opinion. I think that if we actually could like had a video of how life was like pre-flood, you and I would be appalled. And I think instead of being wondering why God did it, we would wonder why he waited so long. 
I think it's also a little bit easier for us in an American context. Yes, many of us have gone through difficult things, so hear me. I'm not minimizing that. But generally speaking, in America, we live more safely and more comfortably than many places in the world. And so in a lot of ways, we are insulated from, from seeing some terrible evil. We might see it on the news, but it's not the same as living it day in, day, day in and day out. It was evil and it was wicked. And so his name and the length of his years, no doubt, is showing us just how patient God is. And so again, how should God deal with sinners? Well, another thing we see that he does, I think it's different than what, how we think he should do it, is that God is unbelievably patient towards sinners. It is his character and his nature. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the New Testament, you see God who says, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. The people do it. They repent, at least sometimes, even though they haven't done anything good yet, and he forgives them. Now, they still have consequences, but almost always their consequences is not, is not, are not what he said they were going to be, simply because they've repented. Over and over again, you see a God who is abounding in faithful love, who is extremely patient. And so what happens is you have people who, who don't read the Bible or don't know much about it, and they read the story selectively of when God does provide judgment or why in certain places when the Israelites enter the promised land, there's a few times where God says, kill everybody. Now, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, but, but so I get like that seems like God is vindictive and he's moody and he's mean, but what do you see? This is after time and time again of repentance and a grace period where people still continue in their sin. Now, of course, all of this culminates with Jesus, who is kind and loving and gracious and then ultimately gives his life for sinners, not for good people who figured it out, not for people who do more good than bad, but for sinners. He is unbelievably patient with us. He is more patient with you than you are with you. That right now in the midst of your addiction or your struggle or that habit you cannot seem to break, he loves you in that. And he is still waiting for you to come and return to him. God is unbelievably patient towards sinners, which means he is unbelievably patient with you. Because you're valuable and he loves you. And so because this is true, I just want to say this real quick for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that because God is unbelievably patient towards sinners, this means that people of God should be patient as well. Those of us that know Jesus and have experienced his grace and his mercy, we should do what Noah did. We'll talk about Noah in the next couple of weeks. That we should be willing to call sin what it is, and we should call people to repent and to trust the Lord and to know the goodness of God. And at the same time, as we do that, as we live our lives, we should have a posture of love and patience towards people like God did towards us. That we should not lead with condemnation or judgment. That we should lead with love and patience. Right? I mean, is this not what Jesus did? Right? What did he, he loved people where they were at, and then he encouraged them to go and sin no more. I won't speak for you, but I personally, there is not a doubt in my mind, not a doubt in my mind, that if Jesus were walking around earth here today, I would be uncomfortable, uh, challenged, and probably offended by some of the people Jesus hung out with. And it's because he didn't hang out with them just to like tell them about himself. I mean, he befriended them. He shared meals with them. He laughed with them. He joked with them. There is hopefully I would have a posture of trying to understand and be willing to learn and to grow. But I do not doubt that I would be offended by who Jesus spent time with. But yet he loves, loves them. He loves them. And I think that's a good act for us to follow, that even in people's sin and going their own way, for those of you that might have friends or family that are not yet followers of Jesus, that we would lead with love and patience and prayer for them, not with condemnation. Hear me. God will judge. We're going to talk about judgment next week, but he always leads with love. 
And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are only a follower of Jesus because he led with love for you. Because he chose to give his life for you. People of God should be patient as well because God is patient with us. And then we'll read the rest of Genesis chapter 5. Here's how chapter 5 ends if you look at verse 28. It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toils of our hands. Verse 30, Lamech, after he lived, fathered, after he fathered Noah, lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years. It's like perfection multiplied over and over again. And then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so Lamech, again, this is different from the Cain's line of Lamech, has a son, and he names his son Noah. And he says, this is the one. This is the one who's going to bring rest and relief, right? And in contrast to the Cain Lamech, the line from the line of Cain, who essentially sought to fight evil with evil. He married multiple women. He does evil things without repentance. This Sethine Lamech, the Lamech from the line of Seth, is looking for deliverance from the curse. And so we wonder as we read this story, will this be the one who will crush the head of the serpent? Noah's name actually literally means rest. He literally means that he brings comfort. And so what you see happening, because what we see happening here is that instead of the blessing of Eden, of subduing and ruling, I would argue Adam and Eve were placed in Eden. There was something different and perfect about Eden. And the goal or the plan was for humanity to multiply. And this Eden-like space was going to spread over all of the earth. Of course, this doesn't happen because of their sin. And so instead, you see the curse spreading. That sin and death and evil and destruction is spreading. And people are looking for rest. People are looking for a way out. Uh, one biblical scholar, John Walton, puts it this way. Uh, this emphasis is highlighted in the conclusion of the passage when Noah's name is given and explained. The painful awareness that people are living, un living under the curse haunts the inexor inexorable. I couldn't spell it in the first service either, so, you know, people smarter than me. Something happens. You can't stop the march of the blemished blessing. Birth and death march on. And the burden of the curse on the ground weighs heavily on a tired humanity looking for relief and equilibrium in an increasingly hostile world. In other words, the hope that is being longed for here and the hope that we see ultimately fulfilled in Jesus is this, is that God brings rest to sinners. That's how he deals with us. That is what he offers us. And in the midst of our shame and brokenness and poor decisions and hurting of others, he does not bring condemnation first and foremost. He brings patience and love and rest that he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves so that we can experience the rest and the mercy of God. This is why in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Now, a yoke, if you're not familiar, it was a wooden frame that would join two animals or more together to pull heavy loads. And they had work to do. They would yoke them up, and they would pull some heavy loads. It was a metaphor of one person's subjugation or the following of another. It was also a common Jewish metaphor or idiom uh, for, to express uh, adherence to the law, that you would yoke your life to the law, that you would follow the law in order to honor God and experience life more fully. And so when Jesus talks about a yoke being free and light and restful, this is not what you would expect to hear from a religious leader. Easy and light is not what you would expect. You would expect rules and do this, don't do that. And I think the other thing that's confusing for us is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that following him is not easy. It's not easy to be generous. It's not easy to be grace-filled. It's not easy to be forgiving. It's not easy to pursue the good of others over your own desires. It is not easy. So the question is, what does he mean by that? What does he actually mean by it is easy? Well, here's what I think Jesus means. That because you and I are loved and forgiven and accepted as we are, it doesn't mean that God's not going to change us, but right now he accepts you, not just some future version of you. It is not our following him. Um, it is not our trying to do good things that earns us God's love. We are loved, and so we live out of that freedom. We live out of that rest, that he loves you right where you are, that he invites you into his kingdom right where you are. And because you have that freedom, you can go, in that, that rest, you can go and live in freedom knowing I don't have to prove it for in order for God to love me. He loves me right where I am. This is again, why we say at New City Church, if you're in Christ, you have nothing to prove. You have no one to impress. Uh, the message paraphrase of this passage puts it this way. It says this, are you tired? Worn out, burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Again, God brings rest to sinners. And this is the good news of the gospel. Not our effort, not our trying really hard, but Jesus, God in the flesh, came. He lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve to die as our substitute, as our atoning sacrifice, that he took the rightful wrath of God so that God can still be a God full of justice because he places our sin on the, on the shoulders of Jesus so that we could experience his grace and his mercy, right? Following Jesus, those who trust and repent and follow Jesus are, are welcome into his kingdom. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate baptism. And all baptism is, baptism is, is a public declaration of people who have found rest in Christ, not in their effort, but on Jesus's effort. And so I just want to say this. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning and you have not yet been baptized, Jesus commands us to do this. He says, go and obey uh, those things. He tells disciples to command people to obey what I've taught you and be baptized. Experience this freedom. Listen, baptism does not save you, but it's a public declaration of an inward change. And so if you have not yet been baptized or you're a brand new follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to take that step with us in a couple of weeks. You can text um, NCC Baptism to 97,000 or check baptism on that connect card. Again, NCC Baptism to 90, 97,000. And we'd love to have that conversation of what baptism is and what it represents. But at its core, it is people who have found rest in Jesus and not their own effort. That Jesus came all these years ago to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he is the snake-crushing seed because none of us could earn it. None of us could do it. All of us fall short. But because he sees us as valuable, God is patient. He is loving and he is offering rest to weary souls. 
not because you've earned it, but simply because he loves you.